If you would love to support the podcast, you can over on Kofi. It's £4 slash six bucks. You can become a VIP member of the Royal Community. We have a monthly Zoom call and we also have a private Facebook group and lots of extra Royal content. Thank you to everyone that supported us so far. Now on with today's episode. Grand fanfare welcome to our podcast, Keeping Up With The Windsors, dedicated to the royal family. Each episode will be crammed to the rafters with opinions, news and commentary on the comings and goings of the family of Windsor. With your hosts and royal fangirls, Rachel Andrews and Michelle Thole. So grab yourself a cuppa, straighten up your tiara, shine your knighthood, round up your corgis and, and let's keep, keep up with the Windsors. Windsors. Hello, Royal Community, and welcome to Keeping Up With The Windsors. My name is Michelle. And I'm Rachel. And we are just getting back to normal, Rach. This is a normal week in Royal Lands. Yay! Yay! A bit of normalcy after all the drama of the past few weeks and the Christmas break. So, just want to say a huge thank you for your patience in waiting for us talking about Harry Spear memoir. Rach, you finished the book, haven't you? I have. I listened to the book. I didn't read it. I listened to it because I think I've got more of a sense of Harry coming through. And I know you're still listening to it, aren't you? Yeah. And I've only got up to part one. So what I said to Rach is instead of me stressing myself out and trying to read it as fast as I can and then just sticking it all in one episode, what we're going to do is for the next three weeks is have a royal roundup of talking everything royal that we usually do and then have a little book club, really. A little spare Harry book club. We're going to start this episode talking about part one of Harry's memoir because it's split into three parts. So today we're going to cover part one. Next week we'll be covering part two and the week after we'll be covering part three. Right. So that's kind of what the episode is coming up today. But firstly, we've just had so much love and celebration for our hundredth episode last week. I'm a little bit like humbled by it. I'm emotional. Yeah. I can't believe it. Any message that any of you send us we read every single message and we appreciate every single one of you for taking the time out of your day to say how much you enjoy listening to the podcast and how much you loved listening to those five raw community stories that we had on our 100th episode and I think that's what's great is we said it in the podcast is sometimes you feel a bit isolated in this love of the royals and you might feel a bit weird sometimes especially if you don't have people around you that share your love of the royals and I think having those five people on from all over the world different walks of life just proves that there are people exactly like you out there yeah absolutely we want to really say a massive thank you to Julie to Charlotte to Bedwiz to Amy and to Anna for being our Royal Community Spotlights last week you really did resonate with so many listeners out there and it was just amazing I mean amazing to share that 100th episode with you and to hear your story so thank you so much for sharing we've also had a little voice note haven't we Rach which to be honest Rachel sent this to me and and Rachel said, brace yourself, I think you might cry. And I was just like, right, okay, let me brace myself. (laughs) And I pressed play and you'll hear in a moment, Royal Community, and it's just the most amazing voice note because... Elizabeth, Anna and Oni have been listening to the podcast for a long, long time. They are cousins. They live in Ireland and we've had a few email exchanges with them 
And the way in which they have put this voice note together and what they've said just really touched us and even made Rachel tear up, which is a hard feat to do. (laughs) It did. Honestly, Royal Community, it's so sweet and we're going to play it for you right now. Hi, Rachel and Michelle, Elizabeth, Anna and Ani here. Congratulations on your 100th episode of Keeping Up With The Lindsay's. We have loved every single one and you can always rely on us to listen to the next 100. We really enjoy discussing the podcast with each other every week and the Instagram updates are great. We also love the Instagram lives. As is everyone in the royal community, we try to keep up with all the royal news, but there's so much out there and it can be hard. So we are really grateful that you spend your time going through it all in detail because we know we can count on you as a fair and reliable source of information. Keep up the great work. From your loyal listeners. So we want to just say a big, massive thank you for putting the time in to send us that lovely voice note and to extend our thanks to every single person who's listening right now or who has supported us, who has sent us messages, who have enabled us to get to 100 episodes and have actually rallied round Rachel and I when we've really needed your help because <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking about the, the queue in particular over on Instagram. You build us up and make us who we are just as we're there for you. So we want to just say a massive thank you. I think you said it all, Shell. We're so humbled by this and we can't believe how many of you guys listen to us each week. We say it all the time. If you've been with us from the beginning, thank you so much. Even if you're just discovering us now because we've had a lot of new listeners recently, just thank you for being here. We appreciate every single one of you for tuning in every single week. And it makes all the hard work that we've put into this because it's just Joe and I that do all of this. You know, the podcast, all the editing, all the social media, it's just Joe and I. So it's it's a lot. It's it's a lot and it's full on. And we have full-time jobs. (laughs) This isn't our job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're not part of the Royal Rota. Yeah, we're not part of the But Royal we love Rota. it. We love but it. We love it. And we love connecting with all of you. And I think last week's episode, it just proved to us how much of a um, community that we've built over these past 100 episodes. And long may it continue. Yeah, long live the pods. Let's head over to the Royal Roundup. We've had a busy, busy week. We have. We haven't done one of these properly for a while, have we? So I, let's dust off the cobwebs. So excited. Like 2023 has officially started. Let's get it on. <laughs> let's do it. We're going to start with the Royal Hobnob. She has been out in force. I love this. Absolutely loved it. The Princess Royal, who is Colonel-in-Chief of the Royal Logistics Corp, visited Cyprus. Now, Rach, when everyone was still on their Christmas break, she was in Cyprus doing this event, wasn't she? Well, she was. She's a Hobnob. She just gets on with it, doesn't she? All this family drama going on. Yeah. And Anne just gets on with the job. She's like, what drama? I'm here to do my job and get on with it. She met with personnel who were serving with the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus. She also met families in the UK base and officially opened a school. Was there any like plaques in this, Rach? No, I didn't see a plaque. I mean, there could have been, but I didn't see anything. And that's because, Shell, it wasn't covered very well on the Royal Socials. What a surprise. Yes, I know, right? How dare they? Tut, 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 Royal Community. We also saw Anne and Sir Timothy Lawrence attend the funeral of King Constantine II of Greece and then carried out investitures at the Palace of Holyrood House. Can I just say, when I saw Princess Anne at King Constantine II's funeral, I thought she handled herself so well. And we also saw Lady 
Lady Gabrielle Windsor there, didn't we? Her and Prince William are the godchildren of the king who passed away. It was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. But there was a bit of a backlash besides that the king, King Charles III or Prince William, didn't attend. But as you said, Lady Gabrielle Windsor was sent in place of William. Yeah, and we also have to remember that whenever there is an occasion such as this, yes, sometimes you do get the principal member going, but we've had a massive media frenzy here in the UK and also internationally about the royals. And for any of those principal members of the family to have gone to that funeral would have completely disregarded the whole reason why everybody was there. Absolutely. And that's the reason why the Princess Royal went. It's always because they do not want to upstage. And I know that sounds really like big headed, but it's a big deal what happened with Harry's memoir. And they just don't want to upstage the actual event. I think I heard this in Angela Kelly's The Other Side of the Coin book. She mentioned that when there was a wedding, they'd always send somebody else because they don't want, like, for instance, the queen showing up because the queen is always going to trump the bride. Again, I, I know that sounds quite presumptuous, but you just don't want to be bigger than the actual event you're attending. So they'll always send a more, say, secondary member of the family. Let's move on to the king. He was in Aboyna Mid-Deeside to visit the community shed. Now, this is a base for local charities which help provide food and transport to people in the local area. The king joined a group in the workshop and we also saw him outside greeting people, including some very cute dogs. Oh, they, they were amazing, weren't they? They were so amazing. And this engagement was the first time that we had seen the king since Harry's interviews and his book was released. Mm. And I think there was a bit of trepidation within the royal community of how people were going to react. And people were actually very respectful, didn't ask him about any of the Harry things that have been going on. And I think as well, the reason that the press didn't ask is they had probably been briefed. Don't even bother asking him because you're not going to get an answer out of him. Yeah. I tell you what though, Rach, we did see a plaque in this, didn't you? It was like a nice little wooden plaque unveiling at the community shed. Well, and also, Shell, I posted this on Instagram. Yeah. He signed a book with a fancy pen and I was like, get that pen out of the king's hand right now. <laughs> Give him a byro. Take that fountain yes. pen off of him. <laughs> he should be banished from all fountain pens. That's what I think. <laughs> he should. He should. But it was lovely to see him and look so joyful being around people and just showing his face after everything that's happened within his family over the past few weeks. I think it was very honourable of him. Yeah, definitely. I tell you one thing I am noticing about King Charles is now that he is king, he's wearing a few more layers like a maybe a waistcoat. You know, he looks a lot more tailored than he has done in the past. And maybe that's just my observation. He's always been, you know, pretty stylish in, in for a monarch. Mm. But I think now it's, it's on a different level. I've said it before, Shell, you know, I think King Charles is one of the most stylish men out there. I'm, I've always said it, bring back a pocket square, bring it back. <laughs> I want to see a pocket square. I want to see people walking around like it's like they're in Bridgerton. That's all I want. So Rachel loves a scarf and she loves a pocket square. So there we are. <laughs> Rach, you call your style of clothing granny chic, don't you? Granny chic. Yeah, I love granny chic. I absolutely love it. Or grand millennial. I think that was one that came out the other year. Oh, I haven't but, heard that. Yeah, I'm not very modern in my dress sense. I like, you know, I don't like to show my body. I like to cover up. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a headscarf any day. But in a stylish way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move to the Queen Consort. As Chancellor of the University of Aberdeen, the Queen Consort visited the new science teaching hub. 
The university carries out world-leading research in health, energy, food, and nutrition, and also environmental and biological sciences. I saw the speech that Camilla gave during this engagement, and she was saying there were so many like Nobel laureates that have come out of this university, and that she sings their praises wherever she goes. And it seems it's really, really prestigious, doesn't it? I've never heard of it, though. I've never heard of it. And she's actually been chancellor since 2013. Yeah. So she's been connected to that university for a long time. She said it's a nice place to come and visit because obviously she visits Aberdeenshire a lot. Let's move on to the Prince and Princess of Wales. The day after Harry's book release and Catherine's 41st birthday, the Prince and Princess of Wales went in their first engagement of the year to open the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. Now, this was an engagement we wasn't expecting and especially to see them together. As they were going into the hospital, a journalist shouted out to William. He asked, are you hurt by what was in Harry's book? And he completely ignored it or he possibly didn't hear it because it was very, very windy on that day. And you can actually see from the videos as they were going in that Catherine's hair was going around everywhere. Really, really windy. Actually, when they went inside the hospital, William had a conversation with some of the nurses he met over Zoom and that he had met during the pandemic. So this was like a first face-to-face meeting for them. Yeah. There was crowds of people in that auditorium just trying to get a glimpse of them. And also lots of people taking selfies with them. Yeah. Which is so like weird to see a royal taking selfies, but it kind of works, doesn't it? It kind of works. And I'm loving seeing it. I'm absolutely loving it. And as they were walking past, William stopped at this one lady who was having a conversation with her. And then Catherine came along and she mentioned like how colour coordinated that they were. Yeah, they were because they were wearing like navy and like a greenish colour. And Catherine was wearing the tartan backwatch Holland Cooper coat, wasn't she? That you love. You love that coat, don't you? I love it. I absolutely love it. I was so glad she brought that out for a second time. I was like, bring it on. We love this coat. So it was just really nice. There was this elderly lady that said to William, just keep going. As it Aww. in reference to Harry, it's like, just keep going. You're doing brilliantly. And he was like, yeah. thank you, I will. Didn't she say like, all the scouters are behind you or yeah. something? Yeah. I was like, I love you for that. I love you for that. Yeah. So it was just lovely to see them so embraced by the crowd. And again, as I said, it was an unexpected engagement. So it was lovely to see them together on their first engagement for the year. Yeah. And I think maybe together was the right call for their first engagement after the Spear book had been released. Then on Tuesday, William visited Together as One, which is a non-profit organization in Slough. Together as One empowers young people and teaches them life skills such as cooking. And during this engagement rage, William was roped into helping making chicken teriyaki. <laughs> and I think he said, didn't he? He was like, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. We're going to make chicken teriyaki. <laughs> and then the, the chef said, oh, what do you cook? He goes, oh, the thing is, Catherine's a, like, I'm paraphrasing Royal Community. But he said, Catherine's a really good cook, but I'm really good at breakfast. I can do a good fry up and I can make a good steak. Yeah, because do you remember last year when he visited Cornwall and he said that he has eggs for breakfast? That's why he cooks himself. Don't you remember that? (laughs) I remember. (laughs) Obviously, loves to cook a a good breakfast. But I just love seeing a royal engagement really hands-on. Yeah, it was really nice to see. But I think one thing that does annoy me about the royal socials and about the press is, and we've said it time and time again, royal community, as royal fans, as soon as there's engagement, it's on Twitter. And we as royal fans that have royal accounts, we're on it. We post about it straight away. Yeah. And it's not until much later that they had posted about William's visit. 
but the pictures, the photos weren't actually that great. I didn't mm. really like what they had posted and he didn't get as much coverage as say what Catherine would get. And I understand that because of what she wears, for example, would garner more attention. Sometimes I just feel like William is underappreciated in the work that he does just because mm. Catherine is seen as this glamorous person. And don't get me wrong, she does an amazing job. You know, Royal Community, how much we love Catherine on the podcast. We absolutely adore her. But I feel like sometimes he does need to be recognised, especially, you know, because he is our future king. One day he yeah. will be the king. And I just think that the royal socials, but also the journalists covering these stories need to be more on it. We saw Catherine, who went to Fox Club's nursery in Luton, to hear how the nursery provides support to parents and their children's long-term social and emotional development. The visit coincides with Catherine's work with the Early Years Initiative, and we've heard on the grapevine that there will be an announcement at the end of the month to do with the Early Years Initiative. So, yeah, it's going to be quite interesting to see what comes out from this maybe some more studies i'm guessing but that's just just me having a little guess <laughs> we also saw that catherine had lots of selfies with the parents which to be honest i don't blame them i would do if it was me too i know can you imagine you just like walked up to pick your kid up from nursery and then all of a sudden the princess of wales is standing there <laughs> oh there she is <laughs> <laughs> like can i have a picture <laughs> yeah we haven't heard anything from the earl and countess of wessex this week though have we well, you say that, Shell. Prince Edward actually did an engagement, but it wasn't posted on the socials. And I only know that because I went onto the Royal Diary and I saw a list of what everyone was doing this week. Obviously, the King and Queen Consort and the Prince and Princess of Wales, their engagements aren't on the Royal Diary. But you can see the list of Princess Anne, you can see the Gloucesters, the Duke of Kent. It was not picked up at all and again this really really annoys me it really really annoys me it's such a shame. shame on the royal social shame on you <laughs> yeah it's such a shame it really is because it makes them look like they're not doing anything i mean if you didn't know anything about the royal family you wouldn't even know who like the duke of gloucester was right exactly well, let's move on then. That's a lovely roundup of this week's royal engagements. We're now going to move into the Harry Spear memoir slash book club for this week. Are you already <laughs> brought me? Yeah, we're going to do a we're going to do a reading room. We're not. Uh, we're going to do a book club slash Harry Spear section. So if you don't want to know anything about it, please feel free to switch off now. If not, carry on listening. We've got plenty coming up for part one of Harry's book. Okay, let's get going with the Royal News. So we start with part one and it's called Out of the Night That Covers Me. And in this part one, there are 58 chapters. Now, bear in mind, Royal Community... Rachel and I have only listened to the audiobook. Although I've done a YouTube video of actually going into Waterstones and picking up the actual book, so I know what it's like in real life. And just before we carry on, we won't be reading any excerpts from the book or quoting anything. We will be paraphrasing and we'll try and remember what we think happens rather than actually reading reams and reams of it from the book. Because if you want to read the book, then feel free to buy a copy or get it from the library. Let's start then. He basically sets the scene that he is waiting for King Charles and Prince William to meet him. And this happens on the day of Prince Philip's funeral at Windsor Castle. And they were going to have a conversation about where they are as a family. And I think Harry wanted answers at this point. And he mentioned that when he usually sees 
Charles and William. They're always having like a little bit of a banter, like a little bit of an argument or whatever. But they look really resolute. They looked really together. Like they'd had a conversation about how this conversation was going to go. And then it was already predetermined what was going to happen. But during this, Harry actually mentions that he talks to Charles and William and realizes there's a bit like a wall up and he can't really penetrate that wall. And I think William says to him, why did you leave? And Harry says, you know why I left. Mm. And he says, no, I don't know. We don't know why you've left. And then he looks at Charles and Charles gives a look as if to say, I don't know why you left. I don't. uh, Yeah. And then Harry... And I think this actually, for me, out of the book that I've read, like I say, I've only read part one so far, but out of the parts that I've read, this part, hearing this sentence from Harry in his own words, for me speaks volumes for why the book was read, because he actually says, and so here you go. Yeah, because he says, so he goes, Willie, Papa, world, here you go. Here you go. Exactly. Because like, it's like, his story has been told by so many others. Yeah, And this is his time to finally get his side of his story out there in his words and using his own voice. Absolutely. And when I heard him say those words, I was just, I kind of got a little bit choked, like, oh my God, here we go. Because this book has been on our radar for, gosh, months and months and months, right? So the fact that we're here, I've got it in my ears. Harry's talking to me. I've kind of likened it to a roller coaster ride reading it. So, Rach, give us the overview of what we're going to be talking about in part one today, because he does cover quite a lot in this part one. Yeah. So in part one, the main draw of the conversation is Diana's death, how we learned of Diana's death, the aftermath of it, being part of the funeral possession, what that was like and what he remembers from it. Growing up at school, being apart from his mother, always thinking of his mother in the back of his mind. Yeah. And you really get a sense of Harry as a child and what he's gone through and the trauma that he still holds within himself to this day. And you really get a sense of it from this book, from this part one. Then he moves into his time in Eton, his first girlfriend, his losing <laughs> his virginity. He also moves into his time in the army. And part one actually finishes his passing out parade for the army. So that's kind of part one in all of its essence. So, Rach, for part one then, what did you think of the ghost writing? What did you think of the storytelling as a whole? I really like the little details, the details that we wouldn't necessarily hear from anyone, but from someone within the royal family that has that connection to them. Yeah. Like, for instance, he was describing Balmoral, it's like Disneyland. And I'm thinking, I don't think Harry would say that, but I can imagine a ghostwriter saying that. Yeah. There was just so many stories that I could tell rounded Harry as what his childhood was like and why he is like he is today. And it just made me think of what it would be like if Diana hadn't passed away. I just got that real sense of if his mother had never died, then how different his life would have been. I think she really did take him under her wing because she realised how vulnerable he was as the quote-unquote spare. And it was brought up in the book, actually. The first couple of chapters are excellent. I was Mm. gripped. I really was. He was talking about Balmoral. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, yeah, we're in this castle in the middle of Scotland. He's talking about there's this amount of stairs and then you go to the left and then you go around this bend and then there's this statue and then you salute Queen Victoria's statue. 
And then, you know, that's how you, how many corridors there is to get to granny's bedroom and stuff. And I was like, wow, like cat burglars, off you go. Is what that's I, what I mean. That was a bit of a security risk right there though, wasn't yeah. it? Because that's given like a blueprint of the Balmoral layout. And it's like, mm, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah. But then I also, on the flip side of that, Rach, I also did think, do you know what? You wouldn't even let the cameras into your house. You wouldn't let them into Montecito. But all of a sudden you are letting us mentally be in Balmoral. I don't know. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Spear just because of this. Because as a royal fan, I just found it so fascinating to be in that world in a very intimate way. And if you've listened to our Instagram live, you would have heard me say that Harry's book is like going behind the scenes in Santa's workshop. And you know what? (laughs) He has opened the doors to Santa's workshop. We just thought there was Santa delivering presents, right? But no, there's loads of elves back there doing their jobs and whatever. (laughs) And I think, you know, whilst the doors are open in the workshop, we might as well have a look around is what I think. (laughs) So that's kind of what I felt like reading this book. I felt really nosy. It was fascinating though, like hearing the little stories, for instance, that Charles wanted to call Harry Albert after Prince Albert, but Diana wouldn't allow it. And I was like, gosh, could you imagine if he was called Albert? I know. (laughs) Can imagine. And then we learned that Charles used to do handstands as a form of physio. (laughs) He's just doing his boxes. Do you know what? I have to say, that part for me, I'm going to just paint the scene royal community. I'm walking through St. Pancras Station in King's Cross. I'm trying to get to my train. I'm late. I'm rushing. But I had to stop because I thought, I just need to listen to this with my full attention because I just felt so sorry for the king. That is such a personal thing to say. The fact that he's constantly in pain. The fact that he has to do these exercises, which to be honest, he's quite embarrassed about. And if anyone walks past, he's like, "Uh, don't come in, don't come in. Yeah. That is so intimate. And then his son's just telling the whole world. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I just felt really, really sorry for Mm. Charles. Obviously because he's in pain, but also that is a violation of his intimacy that he doesn't even want somebody who is a family member to see him or know that he does those exercises to keep himself up. Of pain, but then for somebody to broadcast it and to get paid amount of money in order to be told that for me, I just felt absolute mortification for King Charles at the time. I think you said this before, Shell. Is we've always wondered what's it like being a member of the royal family, yeah. and we really get a glimpse of in the summer when they would be at Balmoral. And he's describing the adults and they'd be dressed in their finest and they'd be having a dinner party. And Harry and William would sit in front of the TV with their nanny and food would be brought into them. But not an ordinary, well, it's ordinary food, but they'd be bought on like a silver dome, a silver platter. (laughs) Yeah. And the, you know, the footman would bring in the food. I can just imagine them eating like chicken dinosaurs, like every other kid. Fish and chips and peas. Yeah. But it's like, but it's brought in by a butler, basically. You know, we always say, yes, they are a family at the heart of it, but this isn't a normal family. And you really get the sense of that when you're listening to these origins and Harry's memories of growing up. I've always wondered what it would be like growing up as a royal and we're really getting a sense of that like you said playing in the corridor and you see a picture of Queen Victoria it's just been drilled into you from an early age that whenever you go past his portrait you need to bow to it this isn't normal <laughs> this is not normal in the slightest but I really did appreciate those little details yeah absolutely and do you know what I think that's something that we've always mentioned on the podcast especially if you're an international listener 
that has never been to Britain or doesn't really know anyone who's British in real life. We do not live this way. This is a very aristocratic way of living. It's a very top echelons of the class system. And obviously then you've got to factor in the royalty aspect of things. So this isn't like normal customary things that we would be privy to. Even normal British people would be fascinated by this type of life and this insight into that. And I think as a royal fan, in a way, it's a must read. It really is. And I think that's what's ripping about it. I get that the whole book is Harry's life from when he was a kid to where he is now. But I would have maybe like a bit more of those early years. But talking of the early years, Shell, obviously the biggest thing that happened to him and to William was the death of their mother. We've heard them speak about this several times in interviews in the past, but the detail that goes into it, into this book, it's heartbreaking. We're told of how they're at Balmoral and the night before Diana calls them, a mother calling their son is just checking in. Yeah, because she's in Paris at the time, isn't she? She's in Paris and Harry just dismisses her because he just wants to go off and play with his cousins. Yeah, okay, mum, like, bye. He doesn't actually say that's the conversation, but that's how I imagine it going. He just wanted to get back to his cousins and have a good time. And he goes to bed feeling, you know, happy and he's on his summer break. And then his barber comes into his room and gives that devastating news. Honestly, that conversation... That goes into so much detail and he's like, darling boy, mommy didn't survive. And didn't make it, it yeah. broke me. It actually yeah. broke me. I think as well, because we're so connected to the royals, you and I, Rachel, especially on a daily basis. And we've lived through this part of history. I think that's what was so hard about the crown as well, because we've lived through that bit. So we see it in a very different way. But to hear the detail, to hear the anguish, to hear the pain, even Harry admits that he... Now, as an adult looking back on it, Charles must have been awake for hours thinking about how he's going to break this to his sons. And he wanted them to have a good night's sleep and then wake up and tell them in the morning. That is probably one of the most hardest conversations you would ever have to have as a parent. And Harry mentions that Charles always calls him darling boy. And just the way in which he said it, I mean, come on, he's doing the audiobook. How can you not be affected again by saying that out loud when you're in the recording booth saying it? Yeah. That's yeah. the reason why, as soon as I knew Harry was doing the narration, I was like, I just got to get the audiobook. I have to. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. It really was. But he does mention at that point being in complete shock. And in not even computing. He knows it happens. And he said then Charles went away and obviously was probably doing some arrangements and stuff. Because I know that he then went to Paris, didn't need to bring back Diana's body with her sisters. And um, he was left there. And he said, I, w- I feel like I was in, in that bed for hours. Yeah. Just kind of staring and not really being there. And that's just as a 12-year-old... You know, I think, was William 14, 15 at the time? Yeah, 15, yeah. You know, those ages, your brain's still developing, you're still understanding who you are and where your place is in the world. It's a really tough time just for a normal person, never Mm. mind a person who's lost their mum. And obviously, I haven't listened to the whole book yet. But I did have a sense that this really was a love letter to Diana. This was his saying goodbye of her. Because you do get a grief story throughout this whole book. You know, somebody who is stuck in denial. He's stuck so much in denial. He believes that Diana's just hiding somewhere. And he was believing that up until his 20s. Yeah. I mean, it goes on to describe 
coming back from Paris and his aunt Sarah, Diana's sister, had clipped two locks of Diana's hair, oh, which yeah. were given to William and Harry. And even now he has that blue box in his bedroom. He said holding that it was tangible that she was actually gone because he didn't believe it. And he, he looked at it and he was like, what's this? Yeah. And she said, this is mummy's hair. And again, that gutted me, that did. And then he goes on to describe the following days of being at Balmoral. And we've heard stories of this before in the past that the TVs were off. They didn't want any news to come in because they didn't want the boys hearing it. They didn't want to upset them even more. Yeah. But then the royal role takes over and he had to go outside and shake hands of people that were crying for his mother. And at that point, he was like, I hadn't even cried myself. And yet I was shaking the hands of people and their hands were wet. And then I realized it's because they were wiping their faces with their tears, tears Mm -hmm. from my mother who they haven't even met her and they're crying over her. And yet I can't cry over her. And I tell you what, reliving those memories of that time in the book, it's such a parallel now to the queen dying because they're so fresh in our minds, isn't it? With being part of that royal community that was crying in those crowds, puts it all into perspective. And because it's such a fresh memory for us in our lived experience, whereas Diana passed away, well, a quarter of a century ago, this was such a poignant part of the book. And it's actually quite an early part of the book as well, isn't it? They go straight into it. They do not, and I say they because obviously it's a ghostwriter who's, yeah. who's written the book with Harry. But I have to say, there are so many parts within the book that you can tell it's a ghostwriter. It's really flowery. Do you know what I mean? With description. I like it in one part and then in other parts, it's really obvious. But I think you'll find this when you listen to the book in total. There's some stories that it's like, why are these stories even in here? They, they're just in here to fill out a page to make a story. I just felt sometimes I disconnected from Harry's story, not because it was Harry, but because of the way that it was written. And you'll find that the more you read the book. It's like we want the description to things that we're interested in, but when it's the bits that we're not so interested in, it's like, oh, just hurry up with this bit. And I think when he's talking about Diana's passing and he's talking about the funeral and, you know, should the boys walk behind their mother's coffin, Charles Spencer, Diana's brother, said, you can't make these boys walk behind their mother's coffin. It's barbaric. Yeah. And it was... We all thought that at the time. Yeah. And it was one point, it was just William that was going to do it. And Harry was like, no, William's going to do it. I'm not going to leave him to do that by himself. Just like, I know he wouldn't leave me to do that by myself. Let's move on a little bit because we did have Harry kind of singing some Spice Girl song. (laughs) I'll tell you what I want, what I really (laughs) want. Tell me what you want, what you really really want. Oh my gosh, I can't, I couldn't handle this bit. And there's there's more singing throughout, FYI. (laughs) There's a few more songs to come. Bring it on, bring it on. (laughs) We learned that Prince Philip's speciality was spaghetti bolognese and that the Queen made the salad dressing. Yeah, but I'm like, what salad dressing? Come on, give us... We need that. We need whether she does a thousand islands dressing amazingly well, you but know? But shall we knew that from that documentary that's never been shown since. I can't even remember what it was called because I've only ever seen clips of it. I've never seen it in its entirety because it's not shown here in the UK. What I did find was hilarious was that Harry taught the Queen Mother to do the Ali G Buyakasha. Oh, that was hilarious. I tell you the other thing he mentioned about the Queen Mother was that she got a hole-in-one in one of the Balmoral golf courses. I was like, go, great mother. You go, girl. You go, gang, gang. <laughs> I tell you what was 
very interesting. His conversation about his similarities with Princess Margaret, but also that they didn't really have a very connected relationship. And now he regrets it. Yeah, he said that she could kill a houseplant with one scowl. <laughs> said we were the two spares. Yeah. And that was really their only connection. I think as well, maybe thinking back on it now since she's passed away, and I get this, actually. Sometimes I think, why didn't I ask my nan this? Why didn't I ask my grampy this? You know, they were there. I should have said something. But you just don't because you're just so busy being who you are, living your life at the time. Yeah. And now he's had this experience. And bear in mind, Margaret, in his position, was never allowed to marry Peter Townsend, whereas Harry was afforded the opportunity to marry Meghan. In a way, he's been way more privileged by the hands of time, so to speak, than Margaret ever was. And yes, they did have similarities, but, you know, apparently she, what, gave him a biro for Christmas, <laughs> right? She's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, but oh, with a fish on it. With a fish. With a fish. It? Yeah. As we know, the royals give like joke presents to each other anyway, don't they? Yeah, they don't give each other like really great gifts because they're royals. They've got everything they want, haven't they? <laughs> exactly. I also want to say that I found the Eton bit really hard to listen to. And I think that's why Show and I haven't spoken about this royal community, but this again is where you, you really see the class divide. Oh, it's massive. It is so massive. Harry says there's a day when all the boys have their baths. And it's really weird that the matrons actually bath them. I was like, hang on a minute. He said, didn't he, up until a certain age, they would be bathed by the matrons. And after that, they'd be supervised. Because obviously, class divide, there's a boarding school. They're away from their parents. It's only for the elite of the elite to get this. It's a world that I've never been privy to, and I'm glad that I haven't. It was the time when Harry and William were eaten together. And Harry's spoken about this in several of the interviews that he's done, that William didn't want anything to do with him. He's like, right, Harold, when we're here, we don't know each other. But this is a normal sibling thing. Like, I went to the same school as my brother. My brother's three years younger than me. And if we pass each other in the corridor, we wouldn't even say hello to each other. (laughs) Like, you know, Mm. not talking to you at school. I don't think that's William being, as he calls it, the air and the fact that Harry's the stay. I think this is just yeah. a normal sibling relationship. Mm. But I think sometimes the way it's embellished in the book, it's made out that William's doing certain things because he's the heir and Harry's the spare. Yeah. And that's how they want you to read it. Let's also put it into this perspective. As the heir, William would have certain regulations, rules, expectations put on him and responsibilities because he's the heir. He would never, ever be allowed to... I I can't remember exactly what Harry said now, something about like just not showing up or not, you know, not paying attention in class. You wouldn't be able to do that as the heir. So in a way, he's also benefiting from being the spare by who he is. And he never makes that point. Reading these chapters and some of the privilege and the absolute audacity of the behaviour, it just wouldn't wash for anyone else. I understand that it's a home away from home. So if they're going to misbehave, they'll misbehave at school because that is their life. But it, yeah, it it didn't resonate with me and I found it really pretentious and I didn't like it and I, I stopped Probably on the three or four occasions listening because I was like, I just can't keep going with this. 
And I think I actually messaged you at one point. I was like, I've had to stop listening because it's, it's doing my head in a bit at the moment. I was like, I need to take a break from it. Royal community, if you follow us on our Instagram, you would know how much I love to read. I read more than I watch TV. I can read a book in a day. If I'm left to it, I can demolish a book in a day. But this book, oh, I don't know. It just... I just felt like I had to keep going. Like I knew I needed to finish it because I had a seven day free trial. So I was like, I need to finish it within this free trial. For me, part one is the part that I probably enjoyed the most because we were finding out all these details that we haven't heard before. For example, I want to bring this up. They used to have at Highgrove what they would call Club H, William and Harry. All their Highgrove friends would come over and they would go and drink there and they would feel safe there so they could just be themselves. There wasn't, you know, any paparazzi or anything like that. So they were just with their mates. And all these interviews that have been coming up over the past few weeks is that there was no talking. We didn't really talk about our mental health. We didn't talk about mummy. But he says in the book, Willie tried to talk to me about mummy, but I wouldn't hear it. Anytime that William broached the subject of mummy, I would just shut him down and I'd try and change the subject. Yet in interviews, he said that William's never really spoke to him about his mother. That's contradicting what you've said just this past week. There's stories that have come up. And one of the biggest ones was... He goes into detail about when the Queen Mother passed away and he says he remembers it because it was a bright sunny day and he was at Eton and he got a phone call. No, he wasn't. He was in Cloisters with Charles and William on a skiing holiday. And there's actual photos of them and videos of them getting back on a plane, coming back to England. When I was listening to this, I was like, who was proofreading this? Because if that's a story that we know is not correct... What else is incorrect in this book and what other inaccuracies are in this and what has been embellished to make the story sound better than what it is? Yeah, we also have to like, I mean, this is how I read anyway. I'm taking this as this is his corner of the truth. It's not the overall truth because there's two sides to a story. There's probably three or four sides to the story. And we're never going to hear those other sides. So it's a primary source of information. And that's all it is. It doesn't mean there's 100% truth in it, as in truth with a capital T. But this is his corner of the truth. So that's how I've taken it. But I tell you what, I want to make some quick points before we move on to some of the other sections of the book. I listen to audiobooks on two speed and sometimes I listen to this on two and a half to three speed. The faster I went, the more he sounded like Gordon Ramsay shouting at me. I've never made that connection before, but he sounded so much like Gordon Ramsay. (laughs) Another thing was, as soon as you got into a story, you were back out of it and into another story again. I've never actually read a biography like it. All the biographies I've ever read, and I've read a lot, they kind of transport you into a place and let you kind of ponder in there for a moment. They're there for like a chapter and then they move on. This was just like a couple of pages and then you're off to the next one. Do you know when you're in like a dinner party and you just go around the table and you hear little bits from each person? It felt like dinner party chat rather than actually sitting down with someone with a cup of coffee and actually listening to their whole story. And there's some stories that are told and the story isn't finished. Yeah, it's it was so jarring. And you'll definitely find that the more you read the book, and we'll discuss this when we discuss part two and part three, is that there are so many stories like that. And because we've heard these stories, we've read about these stories in the press, I want to know your side of it. I want to hear your thoughts on it, what you perceived as what actually happened. And I still don't get that from this book. If you're going to put a book out there, Give me the full story. Yeah, exactly. 
the writing was well done. And you could tell where the 20 million's gone if allegedly he got paid 20 million. I didn't like the style of the book, I have to say, from what I've re- read so far. It just felt so disjointed. Like, keep me in Balmoral for a chapter. What's wrong with you? Why mm. are we moving? Why is there 58 chapters in part one? But- yeah. And what's interesting, Shell, is that he said this book should be used for future history as a historical record. But again, how can it be used as an historical record if people have already pointed out the inaccuracies in it? Yeah. 200 years times, so if someone's going to be reading this book, they're going to take that as face value. Yeah. When you're going to have another person saying, well, actually, hang on, that didn't happen that way. I think as well, when you are, and don't get me wrong, he has openly admitted that he had trauma. And when you go through trauma, there are certain defense mechanisms that you create in your mind that protects you. One of those for him was not really recollecting words or situations 100%. And that's fine. But then to then give lots of details in other aspects of things. It's like, which part do we believe? The trauma brain, when you can't remember something, or the bit where you can remember so much stuff, it seems like flowered in detail. How much trust can I put into this? Or should I just see it as like a personal account rather than as he puts it a piece of history and another thing for me is there's no self-reflection Rach there really isn't and I think that one of the stories that came up was when he dressed up in the Nazi uniform and it was like he was trying to blame William and Catherine for the fact that he wore this uniform he was like well I checked and they was like oh the Nazi uniform oh that's you know that's better than William's what was it like leopard print leotard or what with a tail or something yeah and come on, he wasn't like 13 or 14 dressing up for a no. party. He literally was, what was he, 18 at the time? Yeah, I think so. It must have been about that. But I think, you know, this is when you really get the sense of how much he detests and loathes the British press. Yeah. And this is a thread that continues throughout the book. For instance, he talks about he was smoking weed at 17 and then he tried cocaine and he was trying all these drugs. And then the press made it seem like he went to rehab. He was like, well, hang on a minute. I've never been to rehab. But then the institution wouldn't put out a story saying that's not true. Yeah. And so this is when you get all these conflicting stories of the press said this, the institution said that, but this is the truth. This is my truth. Pa's always like, oh, darling boy, you just need to ignore it. Just, you know, just get on with it. It happened to me when I was young. and Yeah. 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 especially with the Nazi uniform story, he said that his dad was really compassionate about that because he was like, everyone makes mistakes. You're just doing it on a world stage. And unfortunately, there isn't anything that we can do about it. But he's like, but Pa, there is. Like, you can put out a story saying, actually, can you please retract that? Because that's not true. Yeah. But then you've got photographic evidence of somebody, you know, dressed as a Nazi and there's no like thinking that that's not a good idea right when I grew up we used to have a holocaust survivor come in every single year and talk about the holocaust yeah and that was when I was about 14 and I still remember it to this day the fact that we have a royal family that changed their name from Saxe-Coburg to Windsor because Saxe-Coburg was a German name and now we have the House of Windsor. If that name had never changed, it would still be a German name. And there's all these intercollecting threads that go into that one story. And it was such a massive story at the time. Yeah, it was. And he did actually say this in the documentary that he met with several people and he understands, you know, what a massive mistake that was and he shouldn't have done it. But 
at the time, maybe he should have thought about that a bit more. One thing I did enjoy about the book was learning more about his love of South Africa. I really enjoyed this. And then he talks about meeting Chelsea Davey. And you know, the first thing I thought, do not put that girl's uh, name in your mouth. She's gone through enough having been your girlfriend with the press. And everything we know about what they've done to that poor girl. And I thought, do not give us the details. Leave her be. He, he doesn't really go into much detail about their actual relationship. But obviously, he acknowledges that he had a relationship with Chelsea. Um, because he went out there for a few years, didn't he? He did. I think he really got on with her parents as well. And they were in South Africa. They had like a ranch there, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. And you could just really tell that that's the country that he he really loved and that's where one of his first dates with Megan was wasn't it yeah I want to go back slightly because I do need to bring this point up because I found it so disturbing all of the hunting stories in Balmoral like killing deer killing rabbits it reminded me of that film The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio when he won that Oscar when he had to kind of like go into that horse's carcass he was like oh and there was blood on my face and I I was just like I don't want to know any of this they had like four by fours and fireworks and I'm like what apparently right we have to start this book Harry claims that the reason he's born is so he can be the spear and not just the spear as an ear, but spear as in like if William needs a kidney, he would be giving him his kidney. If William needs a bone marrow transplant, it would be him. He was there as a spear part. And then all of a sudden you see how dangerous their lives are with like <laughs> these fireworks and shooting. And I'm like, um, it kind of don't make sense because if that is the case, they would shelter William from every single bit of danger, right? Was there anything that surprised you in part one? I think mainly the animal killing surprised me the most. How flippant it is to kill something when you are part of the aristocracy or, you know, it's just part of the culture there. You know, they have shooting parties and whatever. I don't roll with the elite. (laughs) But I tell you what, it was just really surprising how that is just normalised. I guess in a way as well, the shortness of the stories. Anything surprising for you? I think for me... It wasn't surprising, but I think just the amount of detail that went into the book around his mother's death and how much we got of that is a big part of his story and his life and the way that he has become the man that he has. We kind of forget sometimes how hard it must be to lose a parent, but to lose a parent on a world stage and for everyone to know who your mother is and was is just unimaginable. I think the amount of detail that goes into that and the following years and like you said, how much he believed and he even said at a point William believed that she had just gone into hiding and he honestly thought she'd one day turn up and be like, right boys, come on, like the coast is clear now we can all be together. And it wasn't until his 20s that he realised that his mother wasn't coming back. Another thing that surprised me was losing his virginity story. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And again, this was leaked, wasn't it? It was made such a big deal. But in in the actual audio book, he just kind of, it's just like a paragraph, isn't it? Oh, it's a paragraph. But it was the way he says, oh my gosh, (laughs) the older woman smacked my rump and sent me off the grace. I was literally (laughs) crying as he was saying these words. I was like, oh my gosh, I really, really, really don't need to know about this. But here we go. Here we go. (laughs) The end of this chapter, we have to say, ends with him being in the army and 
says that he joined and he was going through lots of like army drills and training and he goes into like massive detail about like the smell of the plastic bottle that he's drinking out of it smells excuse me royal community i'm gonna swear plastic and piss and also like how much training he has to go through he also mentions then that he gets trench foot and like part of his foot comes off or something and he has to stop this drill that he's at the end like this is his last signing off before he finishes he's in the ambulance getting treatment and then the sergeant comes up and said you're gonna really regret this if you don't finish the next what was it six or eight kilometers so then he kind of bandages himself up and just goes and he thought you know that was one of the hardest things i've had to do and i thought to myself you ain't ever been in the queue mate <laughs> it then goes into a lovely ending for part one where the queen actually comes to his passing out parade and he said that she gives a lovely speech at the end it was a shock for everyone because the queen don't really come to passing out parades but because obviously it's harry she was there and then some royal family members come off really badly in part one and i mean scathing and one of those is a queen consort. What were you thinking about what he was saying? Basically, there was a story of William met Camilla and then that story got leaked to the press and it was to garner and bolster Camilla's popularity because she was not popular no, in the all. 90s at all. She was kind of hated by a lot of people. Yeah. And to this day, actually, we've got quite a few Royal Community members that have not ever forgiven Camilla. Yeah. And they, they are quite open and honest in saying Yeah, that. never forgiven Camilla. He makes a comment. He viewed her as the evil stepmother. Yeah. But from my gathering of listening to this book is that they didn't actually spend a lot of time together. Like Harry, for the most of the year, was away at boarding school. So he wouldn't have actually seen Charles and Camilla that much together but he goes on to say William and I said to our father just be with her you don't have to marry her because there was thoughts of if they got married then there would always be the comparison with Diana yeah you know saying Camilla's evil stepmother my parents are still together so I've never gone through having a step family so I don't know what that is like yeah but I can imagine for some people it's very hard to accept a new person coming in and trying to replace one of your parents, especially when one of your parents has sadly passed away. Yeah, it's got to be really difficult. And then obviously throw into the mix the fact that you never really have any privacy because you're a royal f family member and the press believe that they own you in some way. My overall thought actually, Rach, of reading this book is I am so glad that I was never born a member of the royal family because this is pretty gruesome. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the hunting parts of things, never mind any of the other press stuff. And I think it'll be interesting, Cheryl, once you finish the book, and maybe we'll discuss this later on, but it'll be interesting to see what's going to happen going forward because now we've really only got the king and the queen consort and the prince and princess of Wales and their family. We've heard throughout this book, you hear of stories of, we'll trade this story if we can get a story about this person within the family and we'll trash this bad story if you give us a good story on this person. And it'll be interesting to see how that relationship carries on now within the institution and the press and the 
family members that are only those core people now. You take Harry out of the mix of that because he's no longer in the UK. You would think that any stories now, it's only going to be gossip as such, right? Because the royal courtiers are not going to have inside information because Harry's no longer in the system. Yeah. And I mean, like I say, it is his right to decide that. It seems to me from reading part one anyway, he's lucky to be out. Although, is he really out? He's still getting just as much press and stuff now with the book. Who knows where I'm going to feel in part two and part three. Come back next week because we will be <laughs> carrying on with um, Harry's book club. If you could give part one a number out of 10, what would you give it? Part one, I would say 7.5. Oh, wow. I was going to give you a generous uh, 6 out of 10. But, Shell, don't forget, I've listened to the whole story, the whole book. Yeah. You haven't. Mm-hmm. And I think when you listen to part two and part three, you'll realise why I've given that such a high mark. Okay. All right. No problems. You've got hindsight there. That's something that I don't have. I'll give it a 6 out of 10. So, Royal Community, that's Harry's memoir, Spare, part one. Come back next week where we'll be discussing part two. Don't forget, you can let us know how you feel about part one over on Instagram at Keeping Up The Windsors Pod. You can also email us at Keeping Up The Windsors Pod at gmail.com. Why not leave us a five-star review over on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to our podcast? It really helps us create more people loving the Royals just as much as we do. Don't forget, we also have a YouTube channel, Keeping Up the Windsors. And as Shell said at the beginning, she was in London the day that the book was released. And she was outside Buckingham Palace. And she also went to the largest water stones in the country to see Harry's book. So go check that out. If you want to support the podcast, you can over on Ko-fi. Become part of the VIP Royal community over there. It's £4 slash roughly 6 bucks. And we have a monthly Zoom call, a private Facebook group and also just lots of extra content for you if you do want to join the VIP Royal community. So that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week on Keeping Keeping Up up With The Windsors. Windsors.